My beloved brethren and sisters, if I may make a few preliminary remarks, we welcome you wherever you may be throughout the world. With much of love, we greet you to this great conference of the Church. It is both a general conference and a world conference. 167 years have passed since the Church was organized. From that day until this, it has steadily and consistently grown until at the end of 1996 the membership reached nearly 9,700,000. We have become a great concourse of people. We should reach the 10 million mark by the end of this year. In these opening remarks, I intend to briefly mention three or four matters that I hope will be of interest to each of you. For those far afield, I may say that we're speaking from the historic tabernacle on Temple Square in Salt Lake City. We hope to break ground on July 24th for a new place of assembly, which we have not yet named, where at least for many years to come, all who desire to attend the General Conference may do so. It will be constructed on the block directly north of Temple Square. It will seat up to about four times as many as the tabernacle. It will be used for general conference and for other purposes that are in harmony with the reasons for which it is being built. The stage will be such that it can accommodate a large pageant. We may not fill it initially, but we are building for the long term. This remarkable tabernacle has served us well and will continue to do so. The Tabernacle Choir broadcast will continue from here, and many meetings will be held here. This building has remarkable properties, different from other structures. It is unique and wonderful. However, there are today regional conferences involving only six or seven stakes, where we have many more people than the Tabernacle will accommodate. Now, as we speak of construction projects, we remind you that we are moving forward with the building of new temples. On June 1st to 5, the St. Louis, Missouri Temple will be dedicated. This fall, the temple in Vernal, Utah will be dedicated. Work is on schedule in Preston, England, Bogota, Colombia, Guayaquil, Ecuador, Cochabamba, Bolivia, Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic. Recife, Brazil, and Madrid, Spain. The approval process is moving forward in Boston, Massachusetts. While delayed, planning for a temple in Nashville, Tennessee continues. Preliminary work is underway in Billings, Montana, and White Plains, New York, as well as Monterey, Mexico. The search for a suitable property continues in Venezuela. We are pleased to announce today that ground has been acquired in Albuquerque, New Mexico for the construction of a temple and also in Campinas, Brazil, where the need is great. Other sites are under consideration. I hope to see temples so located that members of the Church can travel to one of these sacred houses within a reasonable distance of their homes. Though I live with it, this matter of temple construction is a thing of awesome wonder to me. 
We are trying to build in such a way and in such places across the world that these houses of the Lord may stand and serve through the millennium. The next item. The General Relief Society present will be released at this conference. These women have done a great and significant work. They have served for more than eight years, giving unselfishly of their time and their rich talents. They have given remarkable leadership to the women of the Church and also have participated on other boards and committees of which they have been members. We are deeply grateful to them. Formal action on this matter will be taken when President Monson presents the general authorities and general officers of the Church immediately after my remarks. I come now to the Brethren of the Seventy. As you know, we have two quorums of Seventy who serve as general authorities with jurisdiction across the Church. The first is comprised of those who serve to age Seventy. We will sustain four brethren in this quorum this morning. Additionally, we are calling a group of wise and mature men with long experience in the Church and with freedom to, go, freedom to go wherever circumstances dictate as members of the second quorum of the Seventy. These brethren will serve for periods of from three to five years. In every sense, they will be general authorities. We also have a faithful cadre of brethren serving as area authorities. These have been called wherever the Church is organized. They are faithful and devoted men. They are men who love the Church and who have served in many capacities. As we have traveled at home and abroad, we have worked with many of them and have been deeply impressed with their remarkable capacity. The Lord made provision at a general level for a First Presidency, a Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, Quorums of the Seventy, and the Presiding Bishopric. At a local level, the Revelations speak of stake presidents and bishops. We have had in between the general and local authorities for a period of time the regional representatives, now more recently these area authorities. We have determined to present to the conference the names of these area authorities to be ordained seventies. They will then have a quorum relationship presided over by the presence of the seventy. They will be known as area authority seventies to serve for a period of years in a voluntary capacity in the area in which they reside. They are called by the First Presidency and will work under the direction of the Quorum of the Twelve, the Presence of the Seventy, and the area presidencies in that part of the world in which they live. They will continue with their present employment, reside in their own homes, and serve on a Church service basis. Those residing in Europe, Africa, Asia, Australia, and the Pacific will become members of the Third Quorum of Seventy. Those in Mexico, Central and South America will become members of the Fourth Quorum. Those residing in the United States and Canada will become members of the Fifth Quorum. They may be assigned to preside at state conferences and strained state presidencies to create or reorganize stakes and set apart state presidencies to serve as counselors in area presidencies, to chair regional conference planning committees, 
to serve on area councils presided over by the area presidency, to tour missions and train mission presidents, and complete other duties as assigned. Consistent with their ordination of 70s, they become officers of the Church with a specific, specific and definite tie to a quorum. While there will be only limited opportunities for them to come together in quorum meetings, the presence of the 70 will communicate with them, will instruct them, receive reports, and other things of that kind. They will now have a sense of belonging that they have not experienced up to this time. As 70s, they are called to preach the gospel and to be a special witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ as set forth in the Revelations. Though all 70s have equal scriptural authority, members of the first and second quorums are designated general authorities, while members of the third, fourth, and fifth are designated area authorities. Although the ordination to the office of 70 is without term, a 70 is called to serve in a quorum for a designated period of years. At the conclusion of this service, he will return to activity in his respective ward and stake and will meet with his high priest group. We welcome most warmly these brethren into quorum membership and activity. They have our confidence, our love, and our esteem. With these respective quorums in place, we have established a pattern under which the Church may grow to any size with an organization of area presidencies and area authority seventies chosen and working across the world according to need. Now, finally, the Lord is watching over His kingdom. He's inspiring its leadership to care for its ever-growing membership. Immediately following my remarks, President Monson will present the general authorities, the area authorities, and the general officers of the Church for your sustaining vote. I need not remind you that this is a very sacred and important matter. We are living in a wonderful season of the work of the Lord. The work is growing ever stronger. It is expanding across the world. Each of us has an important part to play in this great undertaking. People in more than 160 nations speaking a score of languages and more worship our Father in heaven and our Redeemer, His beloved Son. This is their great work. It is their cause and their kingdom. May I, in closing, repeat the words of Jacob. But behold, I, Jacob, would speak unto you that are pure in heart. Look unto God with firmness of mind and pray unto Him with exceeding faith, and He will console you in your affliction, and He will plead your causes and send down justice upon those who seek your destruction. May we be faithful and true, doing our duty to move forward the eternal work of the Lord. Blessing our Father's children wherever we can touch their lives is my humble prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. President Monson. Elder Maxwell, we love you. The longer I serve in my calling as primary president, the greater is my concern for children. Children are a sacred gift from a loving Heavenly Father. Children are an heritage of the Lord. The more I think about children, the more I worry about parents. 
President Spencer W. Kimball said, Our Heavenly Father placed the responsibility upon parents to see that their children are well-fed, well-groomed, and clothed, well-trained, and well-taught. Most parents protect their children with shelter. They tend and care for their diseases, provide clothes for their safety and their comfort, and supply food for their health and growth. But what do they do for their souls?" I am afraid that some children may someday have the feelings expressed by the psalmist. I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. Today I speak to all parents and every adult member of the Church and invite all to unite in caring for the souls of children. Several years ago, I was working in my garden and was delighted to see a family of quail. I watched the father sitting on top of the wall standing guard. The mother was busy keeping her ten precious babies together and seemed to be demonstrating how to peck in the earth for food. I was fascinated. I carefully and quietly walked closer. All too soon I was detected by the watchful father, and he let out a warning call. The mother tried to guide the children around the wall to safety, but I, the danger, was too near, and she became frustrated and confused and flew up on the wall by the father. I didn't want to harm this family, so I quickly retreated out of sight. Unlike my experience with the Quail family, the dangers threatening the lives of our families do not retreat. Satan rejoices in our confusion and frustration and his influences surround us. We turn on the television. Is this a family show? We hear something coming out of our child's room. Is this music? We We try to pick a movie. Did this one really have an acceptable rating? Sometimes Satan's influences are more subtle. I've asked myself these questions. Do I leave my children exposed to danger when I don't teach them the truths of the gospel? Do I neglect their souls when I don't help them recognize the promptings of the Spirit and the guidance they can receive? Do I leave my children exposed to danger when my example is not the same as my words or when I don't share my love in such a way that each child feels it deeply? Statistics and news reports tell us that there are children who have been tragically deserted. Happily, that is not the plight of all children. I have visited homes where love abounds, the gospel is taught, and children's souls are well cared for. I have witnessed single parents who are magnificent in their faith and dedication. I know single adults who are involving themselves in the lives of families and strengthening both the parents and the children. I know teachers and leaders and other caring adults who touch the lives of children and youth who care for their souls. The blessings of parenting and helping to care for children are many. President Hinckley said, Of all the joys of life, none other equals that of happy parenthood. Of all of the responsibilities with which we struggle, none other is so serious. To rear children in an atmosphere of love, security, and faith is the most rewarding of all challenges. The good result from such efforts becomes life's most satisfying compensation." Parenting is a godly responsibility, 
necessary for the salvation of father's children and important for our preparation for eternal blessings. Rejoice in your opportunities to love and care for the souls of children. Our Father has blessings and eternal rewards available for each of His children, whether they are married or single, parents or childless. Our circumstances may be different, our opportunities may be varied, but the end result of our righteousness can be the same—eternal parenthood, eternal lives. Helping to care for the souls of children will help each of us prepare for this eternal blessing. What are some things that we can do to improve? I believe that seriously studying how our Father cares for His children can help us. Everything we know about our Heavenly Father is connected with His parenthood and His loving care for our souls. He loves each of His children unconditionally. We can do the same in our families. His plan of happiness is a plan to help His children progress and be prepared to receive His greatest blessings. We can make plans to help our families progress. He included his children in the great heavenly council and allowed us to participate and use our agency to choose. We can have family councils and include our children as active participants. Under his guidance, this earth was prepared as a place where we could learn and grow. Our homes can be happy places where our children can learn and grow. He has given his children rules of conduct and commandments that keep us moving forward, focused on the path that leads to our heavenly home. The rules of conduct in our family can help us move forward on the path back to our Heavenly Father. The only begotten Son of our Father, our Savior Jesus Christ, spent His earthly ministry showing us how to love, bless, and teach all of the family of God. He taught us that not one soul should be lost. We should follow his example in loving and blessing our families and doing all we can to see that not one soul is lost. In preparation for this talk and in search of answers to how we can better care for each child, my husband Ed and I attended the temple. I was so grateful for that sacred opportunity, for in the temple we were reminded of promised blessings. I realized that the blessings offered in this sacred place provide help needed by every parent in raising children today. Work toward being temple-worthy and obtain a temple recommend, even if the temple is too far away to attend very often. Great blessings will come to you and your children because of your personal righteousness. If you now have a temple recommend, study and pray and attend the temple often to increase your understanding of the covenants you have made. Each parent also needs to follow this counsel from President Hinckley. You need more than your own wisdom in rearing your children. You need the help of the Lord. Pray for that help and follow the inspiration which you receive." End quote. As we become more righteous by keeping our covenants and by more closely following the counsel in the scriptures and from our living prophets, we will truly be blessed with the daily guidance that we need from our Father and Savior to raise our children in righteousness. To all fathers and mothers of the Church, tell your children that you love them and that you are so happy to have them in your family. Prepare yourself spiritually to receive the guidance through the Holy Ghost. As you prayerfully study the scriptures and the family a proclamation to the world, listen and respond to the promptings 
of the spirit. Be aware of Satan's influences. Where do the feelings come from that make you feel that your efforts in the home are not fulfilling or important? Where do the feelings come from that make you feel unappreciated? Rejoice in this preparation for godhood. Rejoice in the opportunity to teach your children the truths of the kingdom and help them experience the peace and joy that comes from following these truths. May I say something to the young men and women of the Church? Look to parenthood. Prepare and plan for it. Prepare to be worthy fathers and mothers. The thoughts of your future children can keep you in the right way. If this blessing isn't yours in this earth life, your preparation and desire will prepare you to love and nurture all of God's children as the Savior did. Your eternal reward can be an eternal family. In a recent state conference, our prophet counseled parents, Never forget that these little ones are the sons and daughters of God and that yours is a custodial relationship to them, that he was a parent before you were parents, and that he has not relinquished his parental rights or interest in these little ones. Now, love them. Take care of them. Fathers, control your tempers now and in all the years to come. Mothers, control your voices. Keep them down. Rear your children in love, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Take care of your little ones, welcome them into your homes, and nurture and love them with all of your hearts. End quote. My prayer, my brothers and sisters, is that all of us will rejoice in the opportunities we have in caring for the, for the souls of children. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My thanks to the First Presidency for this opportunity, during which, as you can see, the lights combine with my cranium to bring some different illumination to this pulpit. <clears throat> As to my illness, treatments to date have proved encouraging, so I gladly express my deep gratitude for having come thus far. Brothers and sisters, if I have any entitlement to the blessings of God, it has long since been settled in the court of small claims by his generous bestowals over a lifetime. I express special appreciation for the faith and prayers of a loving and nursing wife and family, the brethren and their wives, my secretary, hundreds and hundreds of members and friends, and for caring and very competent doctors and nurses. Heavenly Father has surely responded to their meritorious prayers and efforts. These, your gifts, are already a spiritual spur to me. I truly feel unworthy, but I am not unappreciative. My love and thanks to all of you. Something I have heard President Hinckley do many times publicly is to give all the glory, the praise, and the honor to God. This is something I am going to do more often, including today, incorporating my appreciation for God's tutoring and blessings. Uncertainty as to our longevity is one of life's basic realities for all of us. Hence, you and I should importune in faith for the blessings we deeply desire, but then be content with the things which the Lord hath allotted unto us. Clearly, our individual exit routes from this life vary. So does the timing. There are many who suffer so much more than the rest of us. Some go agonizingly. 
Some go quickly. Some are healed. Some are given more time. Some seem to linger. There are variations in our trials, but no immunities. Thus the scriptures cite the fiery furnace and fiery trials. Those who emerge successfully from their varied and fiery furnaces have experienced the grace of the Lord, which he says is sufficient. Even so, brothers and sisters, such emerging individuals do not rush to line up in front of another fiery furnace in order to get an extra turn. <laughs> However, since the mortal school is of such short duration, our tutoring Lord can be the schoolmaster of the compressed curriculum. The redeeming presence of our loving Father God in the universe is the grand fact pertaining to the human condition. It is the supernal truth which, along with his plan of happiness, reigns preeminent and imperial over all other realities. Other truths, by comparison, are merely fleeting factoids about which we may be ever learning but without coming to a knowledge of the grand truths. Mortal experience points evermore to the Atonement of Jesus Christ as the central act of all human history. The more I learn and experience, the more unselfish, stunning, and encompassing His Atonement becomes. When we take Jesus' yoke upon us, this admits us eventually to what Paul called the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Whether illness or aloneness, injustice, rejection, etc., our comparatively small-scale sufferings, if we are meek, will sink into the very marrow of the soul. We then better appreciate not only Jesus' sufferings for us, but also his matchless character, moving us to greater adoration and even emulation. Alma revealed that Jesus knows how to succor us in the midst of our griefs and sicknesses precisely because Jesus has already borne our griefs and sicknesses. He knows them firsthand. Thus, his empathy is earned. Of course, we do not comprehend it fully, any more than we understand how he bore all mortal sins. But his Atonement remains the rescuing and reassuring reality. No wonder of all the things for which we might praise Jesus when he comes again in majesty and power. We will praise him for his loving kindness and his goodness. Moreover, we will go on praising him forever and ever. We will never need to be coaxed. Thus, ever acknowledging God's redeeming hand is very important. But alas, so doing is diminished by the unwise mortal reliance on the arm of flesh. Ah, the arrogant arm of flesh. Like the quarterback whose arm was so strong, it was boasted that he could throw a football through a car wash and it would come out dry on the other side. <laughs> such naivete, such triviality, symbolize not only the arm but also the mind of flesh. The mind of flesh misses things as they really are and things as they really will be. Finally, my humble praise today flows not only to God the Father for his loving plan of salvation and Jesus the Lord of the universe 
for his marvelous and remarkable atonement, but also to the Holy Ghost, about whom we speak less. Among his many roles, I express my particular and personal gratitude today for the recent ways in which he has been the precious comforter, including in the midnight moments. In the holy name of Jesus Christ, amen. My message is to our young people. We have great concern for young people who grow up without values and a base for their conduct. I've long believed that a study of the doctrines of the gospel will improve behavior quicker than talking about behavior will improve behavior. The study of behavior is greatly improved when linked to standards and to values. Practical values useful in everyday life are found in the scriptures and the doctrines they reveal. I'll give you one example. We believe that through the Atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. You should learn while you are young that while the Atonement of Christ applies to humanity in general, the influence of it is individual, very personal, and very useful. Even to you beginners, an understanding of the Atonement is of immediate and very practical value in everyday life. More than 50 years ago, during World War II, I had an experience. Our bomber crew had been trained at Langley Field, Virginia, to use the latest invention, radar. We were ordered to the West Coast and then on to the Pacific. We were transported on a freight train with boxcars fitted with narrow bed springs that could be pulled down from the wall at night. There were no dining cars. Instead, camp kitchens were set up in boxcars with dirt floors. We were dressed in light-colored summer uniforms the baggage car got sidetracked, so we had no change of clothing during the six-day trip. It was very hot crossing Texas and Arizona. Smoke and cinders from the engine made it very uncomfortable. There was no way to bathe or wash our uniforms. We rolled into Los Angeles one morning, a grubby-looking outfit, and were told to return to the train that evening. We thought first of food. The ten of us in our crew pulled our money and headed for the best restaurant we could find. It was crowded, and so we joined a long line waiting to be seated. I was first, just behind some well-dressed women. Even without turning around, the stately woman in front of me soon became aware that we were there. <laughs> she turned and looked at us, then she turned and looked me over from head to toe. There I stood in that sweaty, dirty, silly, wrinkled uniform. She said in a tone of disgust, My, what untidy men! All eyes turned to us. No doubt she wished we were not there. I shared her wish. <laughs> I felt as dirty as I was, uncomfortable and ashamed. Later, when I began a serious study of the scriptures, I noticed references to being spiritually clean. One verse says, Ye would be more miserable to dwell 
with a holy and just God under a consciousness of your filthiness before him than ye would to dwell with the damned souls in hell. I could understand that. I remembered how I felt that day in Los Angeles. I reasoned that to be spiritually unclean would bring shame and humiliation immeasurably more intense than I felt then. I found references, there are at least eight of them, which say that no unclean thing can enter the presence of God. While I realized those references had little to do with dirty clothes or soiled hands, I decided I wanted to stay spiritually clean. Incidentally, that day we went canoeing in Griffith Park. We were horsing around and, of course, tipped over. We got to shore all right, and in due time the sun dried us out. By the time we returned to the train, we were really quite presentable. I learned that when I didn't live as I ought to, getting myself spiritually clean was not as easy as taking a shower or putting on clean clothing or falling out of a canoe. I learned about the great plan of happiness, that we are on earth to be tested. We will all make mistakes. The Apostle John taught, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Fortunately, he added, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I paid particular attention to that word cleanse. I thought that repentance, like soap, should be used frequently. I found that when I apologized for mistakes, things were better. But for serious mistakes, an apology was not enough, sometimes not even possible. While these mistakes were, for the most part, not major ones, the spiritual pain, called guilt, invariably set in. Sooner or later, they must be resolved, but I didn't know what to do. That happens when you break something that you alone can't fix. Among you young people are those who are vexed, as Peter said, with the filthy conversations of the wicked. Some of you joke about standards and see no need to change behavior. You tell yourself it doesn't matter because everybody's doing it. But that doesn't work because you, by nature, are good. How many times have you heard someone say after doing some generous or heroic deed or simply helping others how good it made them feel? Like any natural feeling or emotion, that reaction is inborn in you. Surely you have experienced that yourself. Happiness is inseparably connected with decent, clean behavior. The prophet Alma bluntly told his wayward son that because he transgressed, he was in a state contrary to the nature of happiness and that wickedness never was happiness. Those who don't know how to erase mistakes often feel cornered and rebellious and lose themselves in unworthy living. If you travel with transgressors, 
you will suffer much more than I did in that restaurant. Most mistakes you can repair yourself alone through prayerful repentance. The more serious ones require help. Without help, you are like one who can't or doesn't wash or bathe or put on clean clothes. The path you need to follow is in the scriptures. Read them, and your faith in Christ will grow. Listen to those who know the gospel. You will learn about the fall of man, about the purpose of life, about good and evil, about temptations and repentance, and about how the Spirit works. Read what Alma said of his repentance. I could remember my pains no more, yea, I was harrowed up by the memory of my sins no more. Hear the Lord say, Behold, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, remember them no more. Doctrine can change behavior quicker than talking about behavior will. It was through reading the scriptures and listening that I could understand, at least in part, the power of the Atonement. Can you imagine how I felt when finally I could see that if I followed whatever conditions the Redeemer had set, I need never endure the agony of being spiritually unclean? Imagine the consoling, liberating, exalting feeling that will come to you when you see the reality of the Atonement and the practical, everyday value of it to you individually. You need not know everything before the power of Atonement will work for you. Have faith in Christ. It begins to work the day you ask. The scripture speaks of obedience to laws and ordinances of the gospel. We all pretty well know what it means to obey laws, but how are we to obey ordinances? Generally, we understand that conditioned upon repentance, the ordinance of baptism washes our sins away. Some wonder if they were baptized too soon. If only they could be baptized now and have a clean start. But that is not necessary. Through the ordinance of the sacrament, you renew the covenants made at baptism. When you meet all of the conditions of repentance, however difficult, you may be forgiven, and your transgressions will trouble your mind no more. President Joseph F. Smith was six years old when his father Hiram was killed in Carthage jail. <clears throat> Joseph crossed the plains with his widowed mother. At age 15, he was called on a mission to Hawaii. He felt lost and alone and said, I was very much oppressed. I was almost naked and entirely friendless except for the friendship of a poor, benighted people. I felt as if I was so debased in my condition of poverty, lack of intelligence, knowledge, just a boy, that I hardly dared to look anyone in the face. While pondering on his plight, the young elder had a dream, a literal thing, a reality. He dreamed he was on a journey, rushing as fast as he possibly could. He carried a small bundle. Finally, he came to a wonderful mansion. 
his destination. As he approached, he saw a notice, bath. He turned aside quickly, went in, and washed himself clean. He opened his little bundle and found clean white clothing, a thing he said I had not seen for a long time. He put them on and rushed to the door of the mansion. I knocked, he said, and the door opened, and the man who stood there was the prophet Joseph Smith. He looked at me a little reprovingly, and the first words he said were, Joseph, you are late. I took confidence and said, yes, but I am clean. I am clean. And so it can be with you. I say to you again that a knowledge of the principles and doctrines of the gospel will affect your behavior more than talking about behavior. I have used the atonement as one of many examples. In the gospel of Jesus Christ are values on which to build a happy life. I give you my testimony that our Father in heaven lives. The atonement of Christ can bless your life. If only I could tell you what the atonement means to me. I once tried to express it in writing and close with these lines. In ancient times, the cry unclean would warn of lepers near. Unclean, unclean, the words rang out. Then all drew back in fear, lest by the touch of lepers' hands they too would lepers be. There was no cure in ancient times, just hopeless agony. No soap, no balm, no medicine could stay disease or pain. There was no salve, no cleansing bath to make them well again. But there was one, the record shows, whose touch could make them pure, could ease their awful suffering, their rotting flesh restore. His coming long had been foretold. Signs would precede his birth. A son of God to woman born with power to cleanse the earth. The day he made ten lepers whole, the day he made them clean, well symbolized his ministry and what his life would mean. However great that miracle, this was not why he came. He came to rescue every soul from death, from sin, from shame. For greater miracles, he said, his servants yet would do to rescue every living soul, not just heal up the few. Though we're redeemed from mortal death, we still can't enter in unless we're clean, cleansed every whit from every mortal sin. What must be done to make us clean, we cannot do alone. A law... To be a law requires a pure one must atone. He taught that justice would be stayed till mercy's hand be heard if we repent and are baptized and live by every word. If we could only understand all we have heard and seen, we'd know there is no greater gift than those two words washed clean in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.